Well, good morning, everyone. I just wanted to, to mention that we have a sign-up sheet in the side room there for the uh, men's and women's breakfast and also for uh, the adult dinner night out. For obvious reasons, I need to know the number for making reservations and also for planning on um, what I need to, uh, to purchase for the men's breakfast. Okay, we are in Exodus chapter 26. I'm going to be picking up with verse 15. And as you can see, we have some uh, slides that are going to be put up here. And it's because we're covering the tabernacle in the wilderness. And one of the things we have to understand is that everything God does has a purpose. And that purpose is to point us to himself and to his redemption. And we, in fact, as we continue studying the tabernacle in the wilderness, every single part of it is how God is leading us into relationship with him. In fact, one of the things that I'll just mention very, very briefly is that we're going to find as we read everything that's inside the holy place and the holy of holies, inside the tabernacle, is made of gold. And everything that's on the outside of the tabernacle, you can't see it in this picture, but the brazen altar and the brazen lever. And the altar was where they made an offering for um, sin, and the brazen lever is where the high priest washed himself before he went into the holy place. Those were all made of brass. And the interesting thing of that is, is brass has always represented judgment. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ, when his description is given in his glorified form in the book of Revelation, his feet were as burnished brass out of the fire. Because we must realize sin has to be judged. But then when you go into the holy place, it's all gold, which represents his divine presence because the Lord inhabited the holy of holies of the tabernacle. And so... Jesus' judgment, of course, the judgment for sin has separated us from God. But Jesus Christ came to earth to be the judgment for us. He took all of our judgment upon himself. He died on the cross that all of our sins might be forgiven. And then we were washed in the water of the word, like with the brazen lever. And now each one of us are able to enter into not only the holy place, but the holy of holies. To have that kind of communion with the Lord. And so we're going to find that this first tabernacle was portable. Everything about it is like a, a camp area, a tent. You could just put up. It was all portable. You could take it down and you could put it up. And the reason for that was is so that the children of Israel could carry it along in the wilderness. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that our body is the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. And our tabernacle was meant to be moving we weren't meant to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to be born again, to be saved, and just stay in that same spot forever. We were meant to move along, to, to grow, to become more mature in the Lord. You know, I, I think about things like, um, you know, like during worship, some of the little kids sit with me, and I love it. You know, you have these little two-year-olds, and they're sitting next to you, and, and they're looking at you and singing the words you're singing and this and that. And, and how beautiful they are. And then we had all these beautiful babies that were in here, you know, Julia with her twins and, and, and uh, um, Denise with her little baby. We have all these beautiful little babies in here. And I was thinking about the fact that babies are so cute. They're so cute, you don't even mind changing their diapers, do you? Well, at least I, I never did. So they're so cute, you don't even mind changing their diapers. But can you imagine if when that child was 14 or 15 or 16 years old, you still had to change their diapers? wouldn't be very pretty, and it wouldn't be very pleasant. The point being, 
children, we were meant to grow in the Lord. We were meant to take this tabernacle and to move along and to become mature in the Lord. It says, until we all come to unity of the faith. In other words, reaching maturity in Christ. And so, don't allow yourself to stay stagnant. God is calling you and beckoning you along. And also, as I mentioned, everything about the tabernacle pointed to Jesus Christ and his full redemption. Understand, the redemption, the redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ was not partial. It wasn't partial. It wasn't, you know, dispensed in, in little, you know, bits. His redemption was full and complete and dispensed at once the moment you cried out to Jesus Christ, the moment you cried out for your sin to be forgiven. Think about it. You know, we are fully his. We are fully redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it tells us this. You know, we're talking about all the detail of this tabernacle. And we have to understand that you and I are living stones of the church. We find this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, starting with verse 4. Coming to him as a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, listen, are being built up a spiritual house. And we've been mentioning this for the past couple weeks. When we speak of the church at Berean Calvary Chapel, it's you. It's not this building. This building is where the church meets. But the church is made up of people who love Jesus Christ, who are born again as living stones being built up into this beautiful tabernacle. Because we have to understand that the work of the craftsman is not easy, especially the master craftsman working with us. You talk about hardwood, right? Sometimes it's not easy for him to work with us, but he does. And his purpose is to continue working with us until he makes something beautiful out of our life, as Scripture tells us. And I love, you know, the Scripture also mentions the fact that all things that were written in the past were written for our learning. That through constant, you know, endurance of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And the point is, when we're reading all these details, they all have meaning. And one of the things that Pastor Frank Jr. mentioned in the first service is that the inside of the tabernacle we're going to find was beautiful. I mean, ornate curtains of linen, you know, with artistic cherubim woven right into them. Uh, these acacia wood, hardwood boards covered with gold, with silver stanchions that they were set into. I mean, it was absolutely gorgeous. But then the outside... The very, you know, you had some beautiful coverings on the outside, but then you had the goat hair and you had the badger hair and so forth that was on the outside. That was waterproof, and that was the outer covering. And so the reality is of that, you and I being the temple of the Holy Spirit, sometimes our outer coverings aren't as beautiful as they should be. And I don't mean just how debonair we look, you know, how handsome we are, beautiful we are. I'm talking about just how we are. Sometimes it's not the most beautiful, but that which was, uh, you know, that which is in us is beautiful. The Holy Spirit working in us and through us to minister to others. And so when you have those times that you think, man, I'll tell you what, I was pretty off today. I was pretty ugly today. Know this, all you have to do is just run to Jesus. Jesus, forgive me. Because that which is in you is pure and holy. 
because it's the Holy Spirit of God. That's what directs our lives as believers. So let's pick up in Exodus chapter 26, starting with verse 15. And I mean, this is a long portion of Scripture, so just bear with me. Um, anyway, and for, the, and for the tabernacle you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of the board. Two tenons, <clears throat> excuse me, now a tenon uh, is taken from the Hebrew letter Yod. It's the tenth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the word Yod literally means hand. And so when it's talking about these tenons or these Yods, these hands, it's holding it together. It helps hold the tabernacle together. And verse 17, two tenons shall be in each board for binding one to another. Thus you shall make all of the boards of the tabernacle. And you shall make the boards of the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the board for the two tenons. Now, the detail here is amazing, but it's so that the tabernacle, when it was put together, it was sturdy. I mean, nothing would move it. It was, it was strong. Verse 20. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards, and there, shall, and, and there are 40 sockets <coughs> excuse me, of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For the far side of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six boards. And you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. And they shall be coupled together at the bottom, and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus it shall be for both of them. They shall be for the two corners. Verse 25. So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each of the boards. I know this seems so, but, it, but it's beautiful when you really consider it. And you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for boards on the one side of the tabernacle, five for boards, uh, uh, bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle uh, for the far side westward. In the middle, uh, the middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards and from the ends. And you shall overlay the boards, listen to this, with gold, making your rings of gold as holders for the, bra for the bars. And overlay the bars with gold, and you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the, which you were shown in the mountain. So apparently Moses was shown the pattern, what this was going to be like when he was on Mount Sinai with the Lord. Verse 31, you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. And you shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon the four sockets of silver. And in the front and the back there were curtains so that you could get in and out. And uh, you can kind of see that on this one right here. And you had the pillars with the curtains in between them so that the, the priest could go in and minister inside the tabernacle. Verse 33, And you shall... Hang the veil from the clasp. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. 
You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the uh, lampstands across from the table on the side of the tabernacle towards the south. And you shall put uh, the table on the north side, those table showbread. And you shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle, that just simply means the curtain is easily open and closed, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine uh, woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. So, wow, we got through that. And as you look at this next slide... It gives you just a little bit of an idea of what we're talking about. I've always wanted to do this. Ready? <laughs> I've never done that. Wow, look at how cool. But anyway, you can see how you have these bars that go through and, um, and the boards, how they're up and they went in stanchions and so forth. And what that did is it held the tabernacle, the outside of the, you know, the walls steady. The walls had to be very, very steady. And um, now these boards were formed in such a way that the walls were tightly, you know, woven together. And then they were covered with gold. I mean, just imagine what it looked like on the inside. And it tells us that these boards were made of acacia wood. And uh, it has a difference between the Arabic and the Hebrew. Some of your Bibles say shitham wood, which is the same thing as acacia wood. And a, it's a hardwood that grew in abundance. It grew in abundance around where they were building the tabernacle in the wilderness. And um, to have worked these boards, you know, the, the, this acacia wood into these beautiful boards, the Israelites would have had to have had the tools necessary to do it. You know, like saws and joiners and squares and so forth. And a lot of people say, well, where did they get the tools? Well, remember when they left Egypt? They brought all their stuff with them, and many of them were laborers in Egypt, and they were carpenters. And also, they had many gifts given to them. So they had all the tools. There's no you know, question of, of the fact that they had all the tools necessary for not only the building of the wood, but for the weaving of the linen. And um, where the tool came, tools came from, of course, like I said, are easily answered. Now, a cubit, it's a little different than Frank's cubit. Uh, the... What I found is the cubit is between 19 and 20 inches. What Frank said is true. It's between the elbow and the middle finger of an arm is considered a cubit. For me, it's 14 inches. But um, that, was, that was a joke. Um, but for a lot of you, it's going to be 18 to 19 inches. That's what a normal cubit is, uh, according to Clark's commentary. Um, so therefore, 20 boards at 2 and a half feet wide means that the boards standing upright, of course, of course, would have been the height of the walls, which would be about 16 and a half feet. So when you figure, the middle here is 13 feet. So 16 and a half foot walls, you know, a pretty, pretty good size. And um, also the 20 boards put together would have made a 50 foot long wall. And the boards put together for the front would be... Six, you know, would actually be about 16 feet wide. So it looked like a boxcar, kind of. You know, the uh, tabernacle, if you looked at it, it was narrow and long, 50 feet long and about 60 feet across. Now, the tenons were like tongue and groove. 
is how they hooked them together. They, that when they were fastened together, they were strong. They weren't going to go anywhere. And it tells us the sockets were covered with silver and the boards with gold. And all I can think of is, can you imagine what that must have looked like? Because as Frank mentioned in the first service, the way these walls were covered on the outside, no light got in. The whole idea is that no one would be able to look in, even peer into the holy place, let alone the holy of holies. And so you would have had all these walls of gold, the sockets of silver, and then you had this huge menorah. In fact, when one of the times we were in Israel, they actually have all the utensils ready for the third temple. I don't know if you knew that. They have everything ready. The menorah isn't some little thing. The menorah is huge. And it's fed with oil. And so it would have had quite a flame on it. But all I could think of was, can you imagine how the light would have reflected off the gold walls and, and the silver you know, tenons? I mean, it would have been gloriously bright in there, but it would have been just beautiful. And I love what Frank uh, mentioned, although it was something I was going to say, and now he took my thunder from me. But uh, he was mentioning the fact that there's no light that is ever mentioned to be in the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is. And so it would have been pitch black in there. But yet the glory of the God, the glory of God is what rested upon the Ark of the Covenant. So there must have been some kind of light of the glory of God that allowed the high priest to go in and minister before the Lord. And of course, uh, you and I live in a pretty dark world, don't we? But the light of the Holy Spirit gives us what we need in order to operate, in order to move along. Now, and use the next verse, there we go. That gives you a little bit of an idea of what we're talking about. I get to use my thing again. Um, see, that would have been, see, the menorah was huge. And that would have been right here, the table of showbread. And that's where they, uh, and remember, Jesus was the bread of life. And it was bread that was consecrated to the Lord. And there is the altar of incense. And the altar of incense is where the prayers went up to the Lord. We're going to find, as we move later on in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the altar of incense was changed to a different, pl different spot, which is interesting. Um, and then we come to the curtains of the veils of the temple. And... Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention here, too, though, is that there are some people who, who believe that uh, the tabernacle would have had, you know, some kind of a, a wooden floor. In fact, if you show the next slide, Chuck, I think that's... Now, yeah, see how it, has, it looks like it's a wooden floor? So there are some who believe that they probably will, would have used the acacia wood also to make floor, to, to make the floor of the tabernacle. And there are others who believe that the floor was just a dirt floor. That's what I believe, too. Because for, for two reasons. Well, actually, for three reasons. The, the third reason is I'm always right. But no, um, for, for two reasons, for only for two reasons. With all the detail that is given in the construction of the tabernacle, why would he leave it out? Why would the Lord even leave out the, you know, this description of the floor? But here's the other thing. The tabernacle was just awesomely beautiful. And so it's a picture of the divine coming to earth, the floor being dirt. You know, and the divine Jesus Christ came to earth, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten. I mean, Jesus Christ came to earth, the glory of God, in order that we might be redeemed back to him. Now, 
The walls, of course, were exquisitely made, and the veils were also exquisitely made. They were made of blue, purple, and scarlet fine-twined linen with the images of cherubim woven in. And the curtains, as we mentioned, were used to divide the holy place from the most holy place. And so, uh, as we get along further in our study of the, the tabernacle in the wilderness, we're going to find that the entire tabernacle is, a, is a, the way to salvation. It points out the way to salvation, you know, from sinful man going into the holy of holies. Do you, do you realize that each one of us are high priests? That's what it tells us. We are a holy nation, uh, you know, a holy priesthood dedicated to God. You and I are able to enter into the Holy of Holies because when we kneel down and we go to prayer, we're before the very throne of God. And of course, in the physical sense, God inhabited the Holy of Holies on the Ark of the Covenant. But you and I literally go to the most holy place in prayer. What a beautiful thing we have. We're always in the holy place as believers because our hearts have been sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb. We're born again. We've been cleansed. We're, we belong to Jesus. We are the church. But those times that we go into the holy of holies, those times that we just set the rest of the world aside and we, we get alone with God and we open the Word and we spend time in prayer, we're in the holy of holies. And how awesome that is. What a beautiful promise God has given us. Turn to he Hebrews. I, I wanted to share this with you. It gives us uh, some details. Hebrews chapter 10. In fact, on Wednesday night, we're uh, covering Hebrews. We're studying Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Go to verse 19. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, listen to this, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, when it talks about uh, having the boldness, that word is, can also almost be, be translated in the sense of arrogance, but not in the negative point. Just that I have the right. We have the boldness. We have the right. As believers, being washed in the blood of the Lamb, being born again in the Spirit, to enter right into the holiest of holies. Isn't that unbelievably awesome? That's the promise that we have. Now let's continue. Verse 20. By the blood of Jesus. Now, verse 20. By a new and living way by which he consecrated for us through the veil. Listen to this. That is his flesh. Jesus is not a dead sacrifice. He's a living sacrifice. He rose from the dead. And so our way to him is continuous and living. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful promise we have. Verse 21. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know, Frank talks about uh, those times, and, and uh, we all know exactly what he's talking about. I do anyway, is that there are those times that you might be lying in bed quietly and just with your own thoughts, and you go through those times of self-loathing. Oh, why did I do this? Oh, why did I do this? Why am I like this? Why do I let myself? Well, you know, all those times. But we have to understand, he washes our conscience. 
So when we are going through those hours of self-loathing, just take it to Jesus. Jesus, forgive me, a sinner. And the amazing thing is he does. He does. Remember the Pharisees in the temple when Jesus was upon the earth and he was actually in the temple himself and, and the Pharisees were there and there was a, you know, a tax collector who they hated. They, they thought were traitors. They despised the tax collectors. And so these Pharisees in all their fine hypocritical robes are standing there and they're saying, thank you God that I'm not like this tax collector. And instead, all the tax collector could do, because he knew he was a sinner, is he just raised his hands before God and said, Forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus said, He's the one who is justified, not the tax collector. So when we come before the Lord and say, God, forgive me, a sinner. If you've never really had those times when you recognize how sinful you are, then you need to really ask God to show you. Because what we realize, at least we should realize, is that when we came to the Lord Jesus Christ, we came to him as sinners. And then when we were saved by his grace, we're still sinners. But we're sinners saved by grace and justified by God through his Holy Spirit. And so as believers, it's not like, well, now that I'm saved, you know, I I got saved 43 years ago and I haven't committed a sin since then. Liar. (laughs) It's not true. I need the grace of God every bit as much today as the day I was saved. Amen? Isn't that right? But the fact is, the grace of God does work in us. Now, here's the thing. If you've been saved for however many years, there should be a maturing process. The Bible talks about being a babe in Christ and being mature in the Lord. So there should be a a growing process. In other words, we shouldn't be falling to all the same sins we did when we were first saved. We should have some measure of victory, but it doesn't mean that we have full victory. Only Jesus walked through this life without any sin at all. Now, in Matthew chapter 27 and verses 15 and 51, it says this. Listen to this. And Jesus cried out again. This is when he was being crucified. Now, this is a little off topic, and we'll be getting to it a little bit later, but one of the things that, you're, that we'll find very interesting is that you had the tabernacle was in the very center of the camp of Israel. And uh, what we'll find later on is that you had the children of Israel went out this way, they went out this way. The, it actually tells us how the camp of Israel was lined up according to tribes. And it tells us how wide they were and how far back they went. So you had the, the camp of Israel went out this way, went out this way, and went out this way, and went out this way. And if you draw that out for yourself, you're going to find it forms the shape of a cross. And if you ever look down off of a mountain at the camp of Israel, it will look like a giant cross. And guess what was in the very center? God. The presence of God. Things like that are just so amazing. They're much more than just, you know, something accidentally we find. But anyway, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice as he was on the cross. And it says, and he yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. No longer by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the sacrifice he made on the cross for you and I, are we separated from the presence of God. 
you and I, with boldness, can enter into the Holy of Holies and just have worship and fellowship with God and be in His presence. How awesome is that? We are like the high priest, only not once a year. And, and, you know, we every day can walk in and just be with the Lord in the Holy of Holies and spend time with Him. Now, it's interesting because in this portion that I just read in Matthew 27, 15, and 51, it says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And so you might be thinking, what did he cry out? It tells us in Luke chapter 23 and verse 45, here's what he cried out. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And brothers and sisters, when we find ourselves under the conviction of sin, that first time that we realized that we were sinners, lost, and heading for hell, what did we cry out? Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Forgive me, Jesus. Jesus paid the price, the full price. He paved the way. He was our example. He was the one who led us into this perpetual state of forgiveness and relationship with God. How unbelievable is that? Now, no human hands could have turned, torn that veil, right? But the redemptive work of Jesus Christ without any human hand touching it, rent that. I mean, can you imagine having been the, the priest serving in the holy place, and you're doing your thing, and all of a sudden the temple goes, the, the curtain goes, Boop, and right there is the Holy of Holies, where you're not even supposed to look. And it must have been quite a sight. But you and I, of course, the temple has been rent so we can enter into the Holy of Holies anytime we want to just be with the Lord. We're always in the holy place. We're always, always in his presence because we're born again. Now, the first veil covered the door, which was the entrance into the um, holy place. And the second veil was inside and it covered, uh, well... Get my little pointer out here a little bit again. See, this would be like the first veil that went across. And that covered the way into the holy place. Then there was a veil that went all the way across, and that allowed you to go into the holy of holies. Now, interesting, in Hebrews chapter 9, turn there with me, it gives us, it tells us what was in the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony. In Hebrews chapter 9, go to verse 3. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 3. It's talking about what was behind the second veil. That's the veil from the holy place into the holy holies. Um, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. And the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold. Listen to this. In which were, these are significant, in which were the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that not only budded, but it also flowered with almonds. And the tabernacle of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So in other words, as you entered into the Holy of Holies, there was the ark of God's covenant. There was the promise of God to man which you and I can enter in. And the only way we can enter in is through the mercy seat. That's why the mercy seat was on top. It's his mercy and grace that allows us to enter in. And what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? It's amazing. You had the law. Can you and I fulfill the law? No. Jesus fulfilled it for us. But in Jesus Christ, 
we have victory over the law. In Jesus Christ, the law has been fulfilled. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. And then you had the golden pot with the manna in it. And what did we just read earlier? Jesus was the manna come down from heaven. The word of God. Man, you want to eat a manna every day? You've got it. You probably have one in your living room. probably have one in your bedroom. You have one, you know, in your truck or car or whatever. We've got the manna come down from heaven. And when you eat of that manna, all the spiritual nourishment you need is perfectly supplied. Just like the manna supplied all their physical needs. Isn't that amazing? But what about Aaron's rod that budded? Aaron's rod was a dead, dry piece of wood. Then it budded with blossoms and flowers and eventually almonds. And you know what it is a description of? You and I are dead lives have been made alive and blossoms with the flower of God. Do you understand? How awesome is that? And so it's through the mercy of God that we have it all. The law is fulfilled through the mercy of God. Through the mercy of God, he's given us his word that we continue to be nourished and continue to grow. And it's through his mercy and grace that we're made alive. We're Aaron's rod, budded, in a sense. But it's all through the mercy seat. It's all through the mercy seat. I love what it tells us in the Gospel of John. I'm almost completing it here. Um, Chapter 6 and verses 32 and 33, it says, Then Jesus said to them, to to the assembly, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And of course, we know that's Jesus Christ. We know from the Gospel of John that Jesus Christ is the Word. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, in Ephesians, another awesome portion of Scripture, chapter 2, and verses 21 through 22, it says, In whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together as a dwelling place for God in spirit. So it's talking about each one of us individually growing to be a temple of the Holy Spirit of God, but also we as a church. You know, one of the saddest things that I see as I look around is the fact that so many churches are acting like they're in competition with one another. The church of Jesus Christ is the church of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? My church is better than your church. My dad's stronger than your dad. You know, what is that? I mean, we should be encouraging one another in the Lord, not making some kind of a competition out of it, because we are the church of Jesus Christ. Is, is Jesus Christ's church divided? No. But we all have different places we meet. I remember years and years and years ago, probably when I was about 10 years old, which is, what, 30 years ago? (laughs) Maybe 60 years ago, maybe 64 years ago. But anyway, when I was about 10 years old, um, we had gone to Gettysburg, and they were having the Boy Scout Jamboree there. That's when they used to have the Boy Scouts. But they were having the Boy Scout Jamboree there. 
And it was awesome because they had Boy Scouts, you know, from all over the world. It was really a, a, a neat thing to see. And they all had their different costumes and, or their different uniforms, I should say, and so forth. But they're all there as one, as the Boy Scouts. But in order to be a Boy Scout, you had to belong to a particular troop, right? We're all part of the body of Christ. We're all the church. But yet, we have to belong to a specific troop, some place that we go to be edified and to be encouraged in the Lord. You know, one of the things you'll find as you study Scripture is that the purpose of a pastor, for Pastor Frank and I, isn't to stand up here and, you know, do whatever, entertain. And, and Our purpose, according to the Word of God, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry till we all come to unity in the faith. Our responsibility is to equip you so that you can go out. I mean, can you imagine if you went to school to be a teacher, to be a lawyer, to be a doctor, to be an engineer, to be whatever it was, you went to school, but then your whole class, your teacher had to go along with you? You're trained to go out and to do your work. And in the same way, the Lord wants to equip us, every one of us, to go out and to be ministers of the gospel everywhere we go. This world is becoming darker and darker. And it's only the light of Jesus Christ that can bring proper illumination. You know, one of the things that we have to think about, and we, we know this through church history and so forth, the church has never been a violent, militant group. Do you understand? Never was. How then did Christian morality spread at one time through the whole world? By the holy righteousness of the lives of the people. Not because they were out shooting people in the head. But because of how the people were. When the church is holy. When the people of God live holy and righteous lives. It will, it will be like a, in a positive sense. Like some kind of a contagious disease that just spreads. Because people will see something. And even though they ridicule ridicule you and maybe make fun of you at the beginning they still see something and so our greatest witness brothers and sisters is not shouting people down and telling them how wrong they are and what jerks they are all that does is turn people off and turn them away our greatest weapon is to live the life of love in jesus christ and those around us are going to be affected Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you so much for the salvation that you have so freely given us. There's not one of us sitting here today that has deserved your salvation. It was a free gift, a gift given to sinners, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And Father, I pray that we would take this gift of salvation and live a life in such a way that it would minister to those around us. Father, we thank you for your word. And even those details of your word that might seem monotonous have such deep meaning. And now come, Father, and minister to us, not only through this time of studying your word, but as we celebrate this communion, this sacrament that you have given the church. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Here comes our kitties.
You know why we have the children come up for communion? Jesus said, for such is the kingdom of God. If there's anyone who deserves to take communion, it's the kids. But as parents, it's your responsibility, you understand, to share with them the meaning and understanding of it. And so uh, when we think of communion, it's one of the beautiful sacraments that Jesus Christ gave us. In order for something to be a sacrament, and there are only two mentioned in the New Testament, in order for something to be a sacrament, it had to be something that Jesus commanded in a continuous sense to continue, and also something that he participated in himself. One is baptism. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things I've commanded in law. I'll be with you always. So, baptism is one of them. And the other one is the Lord's table. Now, baptism is something that we do once. After we're saved, we're born again, we love Jesus, we want to give a testimony of our faith, we're baptized publicly to give a testimony not only to those who are witnessing our baptism, but to the unseen realm. I'm testifying I belong to Jesus. Romans 6 tells, go underwater, die in Christ, come out, I'm living a new life for him. The other sacrament is one that we're told to continue doing on a regular basis, and it's the sacrament of communion. And Jesus, it was preparation day according to the Gospel of John. It wasn't actually the, the, the day for the Seder dinner, but it was preparation day. And Jesus was going to share this meal with his disciples because he knew he was going to die that night. You know, from the time he celebrated the Last Supper with the disciples until he was crucified and buried was one day. Because what we don't realize is we go, we count a day from midnight to midnight the Jews counted a day from 6 in the evening till 6 in the evening. And anyway, when Jesus met in the upper room with his disciples, he took the cup and he took the bread. First he took the bread, and uh, I think there's a piece here. And it was unleavened bread because the whole Passover is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he took bread, which would have been much like this, and he broke it like that. And he said, this is my body. It represents my body, which is broken for you. And then he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood, which is shed for you. And in that sacrifice of his blood is the new covenant. The new covenant. No longer are we bound by law, destined to wallow in the guilt and shame of our sin. But now we are under the new covenant covenant of grace and mercy all of our sin has been washed away we've been made clean in the blood of christ what a beautiful beautiful sacrament this is and so jesus said as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup he said do it in remembrance of me and that's why in our communion table we have in remembrance of me now here's the thing Jesus said he wasn't going to participate in this sacrament again until he participated in it anew with you and I in heaven. When we go to heaven, when the rapture occurs, and the whole church is meeting God in heaven, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be a big communion service. And you know who's going to officiate it? Not me. It's going to be Jesus. Well, how can that be? There's going to be millions of people, and Jesus is one. No, no, Jesus is glorified God. He's omnipresent. I don't know how it's going to look, but he's going to offer communion to each one of us personally. Can you imagine? But until that day comes, we're supposed to be doing this in remembrance of him. Brothers,
Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you so much for this sacrament that we call the Lord's Table or Communion, and we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive it. And Father, you know that the only thing that we need to do is confess, confess our need for you, and confess our desire to be your servants, and we're ready, we're worthy to participate in this sacrament. And so, Father, prepare our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay.
This is the wonderful thing about communion. It's such a reminder of all that God has done for us. I'm sure every one of us, every single one of us, have certain areas of our life that Satan is always reminding us of, Satan's always accusing us about. But know this, you've been set free. He whom the Son of Man has set free is what? Free indeed. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been washed clean, and they're remembered no more. Therefore, take and eat and drink and be so thankful, my friends. Thank you, Jesus, for this sacrament, for this communion. And I pray that you would bless it to our spiritual nourishment and to our confidence in you, that we might be strengthened by your Holy Spirit to go out and do the work of ministry. And I pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, my brothers and sisters.